Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. We have a great show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Once again, we have all of the latest for you coming out of Israel and Gaza um, and the risks of that igniting a broader war is what we're starting our focus on today. We also have a little bit of movement in terms of humanitarian aid and um, the strikes uh, that Israel has been uh, committing on Gaza, hitting very close to home for Justin Amash, former congressman, bringing that as well. And there's some new polling showing how the American people are viewing all of this. And I have to tell you, I was a little surprised by it. So, yeah, it, it's very interesting. Yeah, the yeah. details and the divides and all of that are very interesting to get into. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about what we know about what the future might look like in Gaza. A um, lot of question marks there right now, something the U.S. has been pushing Israel on. We also have some updates for you out of Trump world. Uh, Sidney Powell and Trump-aligned attorney Kenneth Cheesebro have both pled guilty seeming to flip, promising to uh, testify for the prosecution. So we will take a look at what that means. And Dave Chappelle <laughs> making some controversial comments, I suppose, about uh, Palestinians and big audience reaction, yeah. big fallout from that. So we'll tell you everything we I'm know excited about to that see as well. It. I'm yeah. excited to see it. I just wanted to say before we started, thank you to everybody. People have been taking advantage of our focus group discount. But uh, more importantly, we've just been getting so many nice uh, messages from so many of the uh, premium subscribers and others to be able to support work like that. So it's something we're genuinely trying to do here, which is different than everyone else. 
else. We put the full thing out as a podcast and on our YouTube channel if you want to go and take a look. Next one coming is going to be Independence. We're working on it right now, and if you can help us out with that, we would deeply appreciate it. But we're going to start with the news, as Crystal alluded to, about the fear of a broader war involving the United States, which is sweeping Washington. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. This is from an inside report of Axios. Headline, quote, Behind the curtain, rattle U.S. government fears wars could spread. Uh, What they point to is that multiple officials inside of the White House said that this is, quote, the heaviest, most chilling week since President Biden took office just over 1,000 days ago. And what they basically point to is the very basics of what we've already laid out here, which is that the response to the terrorist attack now at this point is seriously embroiling policymakers in fears of what comes next. Because it's not just about whether the situation can be contained to Gaza and Israel. It's, is Lebanon going to join this war? Is Hezbollah going to join this war? If so, then what? Is Israel going to bomb Iran? If they bomb Iran, is Iran going to retaliate against America? And then the United States, by supporting Israel, are we now inviting, you know, jihadists to attack us through anger in the Arab world? And on top of that, what about the Iranians? And this has already come. I brought everybody the news on Thursday, Crystal, about the United States being attacked, you know, on multiple bases in Iraq and in Syria. One of our civilian contractors actually died of a heart attack um, during the attack. But worse, really, is that we are officially now engaging Iranian proxies in Iraq and in Syria, and then also in uh, off the coast of Yemen, where the USS Kearney, a guided missile destroyer, was engaged in an hours-long shootdown of multiple drones and missiles, which they say were headed towards Israel. So. All of this is just igniting fear of this is before the so-called invasion has even begun. This is before you know the uh, ground you know hand-to-hand combat, which is anticipated, is happening. At the same time, in fears of a bigger conflict with Iran. Let's put this up there on the screen. This is actually, in my opinion, the most significant piece of news from the U.S. military, not the carrier groups, not any of the other stuff. The U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has ordered additional forces to the Middle East, including the deployment of a terminal high-altitude area defense system, as well as additional Patriot batteries. Now, as Lucas Tomlinson here from Fox News aptly uh, points out, Hamas and Hezbollah, they don't have ballistic missiles. Only Iran does. So, Crystal, the moment I saw the THAAD missile defense system being deployed um, to the region, I was like, okay, they are very, very seriously considering this. Just so people understand, um, these are the types of things that we deploy against North Korea um, and against very advanced military. So the idea that we would immediately deploy this system to the region in addition to the Patriot missile defense systems, which the Saudis have used in the past against the Houthis, tells us that they are extremely concerned about a broader war, not with, you know— not with Hezbollah, not against terrorism, terrorist groups like Hamas, directly with Iran. You don't do it otherwise. Yeah, that is the the big concern here in Washington and something obviously we need to be concerned about as well because this is an incredibly fraught, dangerous situation that was supposedly the point of President Biden's trip to the Middle East was trying to dissuade, (laughs) trying to deter other actors from getting involved here. Also, you know, while standing unequivocally beside Israel, apparently trying to talk behind the scenes to Netanyahu, there's Reporting this morning uh, that the U.S. has become more insistent on delaying that ground invasion. Um, They are putting it 
the way they are uh, urging it is to try to deal with negotiating on the hostages before they push forward with the ground invasion. But um, this is just an incredibly, incredibly dangerous, chaotic situation. And if we zoom out even from, you know, the immediate threat of a broader war and how that might implicate the U.S., how we might end up getting involved. And again, we talked about how they've already laid out the legal justification that it's not like they'd be asking you or me. They wouldn't even be asking Congress before committing troops if we did go in that direction. There's also the broader geopolitical picture of how this interacts with, hey, this isn't the only you know war that we are somewhat involved with. You also have what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. And you have had attempts from the Biden administration to try to uh, charm the global south. And they are looking at the situation in Gaza and Israel's relentless attacks. By the way, there was another massive barrage of missiles fired into Gaza overnight in a, a brutal assault on Gaza City in particular. They're looking at this very differently than U.S. policymakers are, and they see a massive amount of hypocrisy. New York Times actually reporting on this this morning and the view not only from Palestinians, but from the globe, global south more broadly. They quote a uh, Ramallah-based Palestinian political commentator who says when the war first broke out in Ukraine, Ukraine, Palestinians were actually elated by the tough stance taken by Western capitals against one country occupying another's land. But then they go on to say, it seems that occupation is only bad if the guys who are not on your side are doing it. So China and Russia, of course, taking advantage of this situation, consolidating more support among the global south. You know, countries like India trying to figure out how they are going to navigate, you know, a complex situation for them as well. But, um, you know, the disparate views of occupation, depending on whether it is Russia, our adversary, or Israel, our ally, is once again exposing the, you know, the one consistent of U.S. foreign policy, which is our hypocrisy. Well, yeah, and that is why the entire time, you know, on Ukraine, I was like, look, the point, you're, this whole, like, democracy, autocracy, and all that, obviously it falls apart at a cursory glance of U.S. interests, which is why the best way to conduct U.S. foreign policy is to talk about what's in it for us and does it benefit us to go into the net, benef uh, the net effect of how much we are funding this. That's the best way and always has been in order to conduct yourself as a state. However, here in uh, Washington, uh, policymakers and others twisting themselves into knots to try and justify why, if Israel were to be embroiled in a larger war, why it is worth actually the United States not going to war with Hamas, not going to war with Hezbollah, directly going to war with Iran. For a perfect example of what real bipartisanship looks like here in Washington, let's put this up there on the screen. Senator Lindsey Graham was in Tel Aviv yesterday with 10% of the U.S. Senate, as he so aptly noted. He says, I saw things today I never thought possible. On Iran, quote, we are watching you. Destroying Hamas is non-negotiable. I actually find it a bit funny that uh, Cory Booker is there because he was actually in Israel during the attack. So does that mean that he left Israel after the attack, flew back to Washington, and then flew back to Tel Aviv just to prove um, how pro-Israel he is? Wherever there is a camera. The thing is, let's keep this photo up here because this is important. This are people, Susan Collins, Chris Coons, you've got uh, John Thune, number two Republican in the Senate, Blumenthal from Connecticut, Cory Booker, Katie Britt from Alabama, Lindsey Graham. The point of this is just to show people that is a, that is a very good ideological representation of where most people in the Senate are. And so when we look at that, we can understand that 
war with Iran is very much on the table. And you can, that's especially highlighted if we put this Haaretz up on the screen. An Israeli minister, actually the economy minister, said that, quote, if Hezbollah does choose to open a front in the north, Iran will also, or Israel will also attack Iran. Israel's plan, Iran's plan is to attack Israel on all fronts. If we realize that, that they intend to attack Israel, not only on all our fronts, we will then hit the head of the snake, Iran. He said in an interview with the Daily Mail, he also threatened that opening a front on the part of Hezbollah would result in Israel, quote, wiping it off of the face of the earth. All of this comes with pretty significant military activity on that northern border, which uh, for some reason the media doesn't uh, seem to report responsibly. I mean, we've had multiple IDF soldiers killed. We've had multiple airstrikes all across of uh, the northern border of Israel. We've even seen an evacuation by all citizens, the United States included, urging our people, get the hell out of Lebanon now. You don't do that unless you think broader hostilities are going to happen, not just us, many other countries that are in the region. And we're watching, Crystal, as probably the most advanced, the actual like military to military capabilities happening so far pre-invasion, it's all Hezbollah and Israel in terms of, or not even just Hezbollah, Iranian proxies in terms of their much more advanced weapon systems. And that's what, you know, really should, uh, we should all be afraid of. Yeah, I think. there's yeah. no doubt about it. And, you know, just because perhaps the U.S. is not interested in a war with Iran, they understand it might be biting off more than we can really chew, does not mean that we don't get dragged into this conflict. Mm -hmm. These things take on a life of their own. And so when you have the Biden administration, I mean, they're not willing to use any of the considerable leverage that the U.S. has to constrain Israeli actions to try to, number one, avoid civilian casualties, number two, more, perhaps even more critically, to try to avoid this broader war. And then you've got a, sorry, psycho like Lindsey Graham leading this delegation of senators into Israel. I mean, recall some of the comments that we played yeah. that this man said. He's like framing this as a holy war <laughs> and actively, effectively calling for World War III. That's his position. And you've got 10% of a United States Senate, Democrats and Republicans, quote unquote, liberals and conservatives standing shoulder to shoulder with this man who has long been clamoring for war with Iran, I might add. And you come to see very quickly what a precipice we are on and how quickly this could spiral out of control. Yeah, that's right. And Martyr Maid, uh, who we mentioned before, Daryl Cooper, he does that podcast with uh, Jocko Willing. He uh, hopefully will be joining us uh, on Thursday. Let's put this up there on the screen. I th thought he did a really good job of laying this out. When we say war with Iran, it just sounds like words, but it's not. And as he points out, quote, a war with Iran would have to be all or nothing, meaning that a draft would probably be necessary. We'd launch every tomahawk we have in the region and it wouldn't make a dent. All of the places on this map would find themselves under attack by Iranian missiles. It would be prohibitively dangerous for the U.S. Navy to try and force an opposed entry to the Gulf. Saudi oil refineries would be hit. The Iraqi embassy would probably be overrun. Kuwait and the other places we previously staged invasions would be under continuous missile and drone attack. Turkey probably wouldn't allow us to use that country as a base. Coming from the east means driving over 1,000 miles of barren desert before reaching a meaningful human settlement. Is it impossible? No, but it would be a real war requiring consistent commitment, which I think and hope even the Biden administration knows is beyond us right now. And he points to this map of the deployment of U.S. troops that I've referenced now 
multiple times, just how many thousands of people that we have in the region. And we got a very small glimpse of it. You know, when you've got thousands of troops in Syria, oh, you know, in a country which we never declared war on, and for some reason we're continuing to have bases on, well, you know, now we're, uh, they're fair game. They're very, very close to a lot of these proxies. And people, missiles, drones, gets launched at them. Same thing in the Gulf of uh, in Yemen with our guided missile destroyers and all those. But what he's really pointing to is the extraordinary vulnerability that a lot of our troops have, you know, on these bases, the Baghdad embassy, the bases on Iraq. And that's just, you know, not even to mention Bahrain, which is right there. Remember that case when, what was it, a bunch of sol- a soldiers or a sa- some sailors like drifted into Iranian water? That's how close we are to Iran. Every single day, we're right there, you know, on that line of where their waters, be- or their water, territorial waters began and ours, um, you know, we're allowed to operate in the international waters. But that that just points out the when you can drift into the enemy territory, then it's not that easy for them to fire at you. And this is for all the sanctions, for all the you know efforts that we have made to degrade the Iranian military, to degrade their capacity. What lesson can we learn from Russia? Is that you can do all of that, and you can still mount a pretty effective military campaign, and you can kill a hell of a lot of people. Now, will you win outright? You know, as the U.S. military might, maybe not. But you can make it very painful painful enough to kill tens of thousands of people where Americans are gonna be like, okay, what's actually going on here? Even in the global war on terror, we never lost the amount of troops that we likely would lose in the, just you know in the first year or so of a conflict like this. America has not felt anything like this since Vietnam. It's been a long, long time, and I I would say let's try not to feel it again. Yeah, there's no reason to. Indeed, absolutely. And just yeah. to underscore the level of volatility, put this up on the screen. The U.S. State Department has issued a worldwide right. caution alert for U.S. citizens due to Israel's war on Hamas. Um, This, again, just underscores how much we are on edge. It advises U.S. citizens to exercise increased increased caution due to the potential for terrorist attacks, demonstrations, or violent actions against U.S. citizens and interests. You know, the the brutality of the Israeli assault on Gaza, the number of civilian casualties that we have already had before they even have begun the ground invasion has really united a lot of countries in the Arab world and Mm -hmm. throughout the broader East, broader Middle East um, against us. And as I was saying before, when you combine that with what they view as complete hypocrisy in terms of our stance on the Ukraine war versus how we are approaching Israel's war on Gaza, It is an incredibly tense, fraught, and dangerous situation that could spiral with one incident. I mean, I think we had a little bit of a glimpse of that with this hospital bombing and the way that instantly led Mm -hmm. to mass protests, anger, fury, not just throughout the region, but really throughout the world. And you can see how one incident could be a spark to a much broader conflagration. Yeah, I think you are absolutely correct to note that. Okay, let's move on to the next part here uh, with some still very, very significant news. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. Israel has confirmed that two American hostages that have been released, they were Judith and Natalie Runon. They had been in Israel celebrating a relative's birthday and were at a kibbutz only a mile away from the Gaza border. Now, those hostages were released 
after the United States um, brokered some sort of negotiation with Hamas via the Qatari government. So the Times of Israel actually has some of the details, if we can move to the next one here. Uh, and it's pretty significant. So what he says is that following Hamas's release now of two hostages, one of the pressure points from the U.S. and EU governments is they're trying to get Israel to hold off on the ground invasion, quote, fearing it'll all but scuttle efforts to secure any additional hostage releases for the foreseeable future. The Western governments are currently pressuring Israel. They all have citizens that are unaccounted for and believe that as more time passes, the harder it will be to secure those hostages release. The governments recognize the ground invasion is very likely and are not telling Israel not to launch one, rather to hold off and try and see if additional diplomatic efforts can succeed. So obviously that was incredibly significant to see the release of two hostages, but we this is the issue. We don't even know what the number is. We, we genuinely have no idea. Yeah. What is the number of Americans that are currently being held hostage? It could be 20. Are they even alive? I mean, thank God these two are, but you know, if you got these two out, then there's the other question of well, where's everybody else? Why right. these two? Is you know just because they were uh, relatives? Like I, I'm just not sure what's going on here. Yeah, that's yeah. right. The latest numbers this morning in terms of overall number of hostages per the Israeli government is 222. And the other piece of news that came out, because keep in mind, as as we've been discussing, this issue of hostages is incredibly emotional for everyone involved, but for the Israeli public in particular. And there's a lot of pressure on Netanyahu to try to secure their release. And also, you know, as this um, massive bombing campaign is going on in Israel, there's a lot of concern that some of the hostages could be killed in those strikes. So put this up on the screen. This news came out that apparently um, Hamas had offered to return two Israeli hostages. Um, of course, they should return all hostages. These are, uh, by and large, innocent civilians. It is uh, an atrocity that they're being held right now uh, captive against their will. But Israel decided that they would not accept those two hostages back from Hamas, saying they will not address what is considered to be mendacious propaganda by the group. So their view, this is hard for me to understand, frankly, is that they didn't want to give Hamas some sort of a PR victory by making it appear like they were open to negotiations in good faith by accepting these two hostages. But I'm sure if you're the family members right. of those two individuals who could have been set free, I'm sure that you feel this was you know, outrageous uh, and insane for Israel to deny the ability of these two individuals to be let go. Uh, once again, just to, to underscore for you, put a 10 up on the screen of the way that this hostage situation is being handled and what a political nightmare this is for Netanyahu right now. This is an analysis from Haaretz. The headline here is Netanyahu is petrified of the hostages' families. It could impact his judgment. Let me just read all of this because this is actually insane mm -hmm. what he has done here. So first he gave a statement to the nation on Saturday evening. This was like a week ago. He claimed to have spoken to those who lost their loved ones or whose fate is unknown. No actual family member of a hostage was identified as having spoken to him. Okay, so that's that. The next day, he finally meets with a group of representatives from the Hostages and Missing Families Forum. When suddenly a man, who claimed to also be a relative of a hostage, entered the meeting, starting praising the prime minister, saying he trusted any decision that he makes. Well, it emerged after that 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 dude is a far-right activist with ties to members of the Netanyahu family, zero known ties to hostages. The man's wife, meanwhile, had organized a counter-protest outside the IDF headquarters in Tel Aviv, opposite the family's vigil. Some of the protesters screamed abuse at the forum members. So let me just let that sink in. 
it looks like Netanyahu, after delaying speaking to any hostage families for quite a while after these people had been taken, he then finally meets with this group and allows this activist to come in and pretend like he's a hostage family member and talk up how great Bibi is and how he must be doing everything right. And of course, we should follow his lead, et cetera, et cetera, thinking that he's going to fool them into believing that this is, you know, a genuine hostage family member. It tells you the lengths that they are going to to try to manipulate this situation because they know how politically volatile um, the question of hostages is yeah. in, in Israel. Yeah, I mean, that's something I think we tried to flag from the very beginning. The moment that this happened is that uh, it, it hits different in Israel, uh, mostly because, as we've seen previously, first with Israel, they've traded you know mass numbers of militants for a single IDF soldier in the past, Netanyahu, yeah. quite literally, because in many cases, everyone has a family member who has had to serve in the IDF or in the military. Now, some of these hostages are just straight up civilians, so the pressure for them to trade or to do everything they can to get those people out is even more palatable. Also, you know, just to bring the weird math, you know, everyone's always like, oh, you know, X amount of 9-11s. Well, you could flip it around on the hostage situation and say, well, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who may know somebody who was either killed or taken hostage. So right. their sympathy, their want, within a small country, a couple hundred people, you know, same equivalent to thousands of people here in the U.S., where somebody would, those their stories and all that are going to have a tremendous amount of sympathy um, from the overall public. So how the Israeli government is able to uh, how the Israeli government is, you know, has to navigate this is really difficult. I mean, just recall, you know, America itself throughout the entire global war on terror, our hostage, uh, the way that we handled everything completely changed. In the beginning, it was like, oh, we're not going to negotiate with terrorists. And it's like, we, I think, believe the, we lifted the ban on the ability of families and private parties to be able to negotiate some sort of hostage payments. Then in some cases, we said that we wouldn't negotiate at all. But then in some cases, we would send, you know, the Secretary of State and others before. So this is the a very thorny issue. Just recall, you know, here in America, people like Otto Warmbier with North Korea, or I'm trying to think, you know, several that happened in Iran, I believe, who went hiking on the Iran-Iraq border, something I still don't understand. <laughs> the people who got captured in Afghanistan, Bo Bergdahl, you know, there's still a lot of controversy um, around many of those decisions. So magnify it by like 20 whenever you're thinking about the hostage situation in Israel. Absolutely. So we also have some updates from on the ground. Um, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This was was really quite shocking. Uh, Justin Amash, I don't know if you all remember, he's a former congressman. He just left in uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. He had several relatives who were killed in the bombing of an Orthodox church in Gaza. Let me read you his statement here. He says, I was really worried about this. With great sadness, I've now confirmed several of my relatives, including Viola and Yara, pictured here, were killed at this Orthodox church in Gaza where they had been sheltering when part of the complex was destroyed as a result of an Israeli airstrike. Give rest, O Lord, to their souls. May their memories be eternal. The Palestinian Christian community has endured so much. Our family is hurting badly. May God watch over all Christians in Gaza and all Israelis and Palestinians who are suffering, whatever their religion or creed. He posted another, um, another message on Twitter after this one saying, my family and I would like to express our heartfelt appreciation for the many kind and gracious messages of condolence for our beloved cousins in Gaza. Please remember the thousands upon thousands of innocent civilians in unbearable circumstances who simply want a life of peace. So many of the people suffering are just children. They do not deserve violence and death. 
Um, the details of this strike, uh, this Israeli strike on this church, which they don't dispute, by the way. They mm -hmm. say they were trying to hit a building next door, but they hit this church. Um, it was sheltering displaced people on Thursday night. Uh, the church compound comprising a chapel, seven buildings, and a courtyard was full of Christian families from the Gaza Strip. They said the airstrike happened around 7.30 p.m. when dinner was being distributed. The Gazan Health Ministry, which is controlled by Hamas, said at least 16 people were killed, and many others were still buried under rubble. The death toll could not be independently confirmed. And, of course, the fact that you have relatives of, you know, a very recently serving Republican member of Congress um, just really underscores the devastation in Gaza right now, and also, Sagar, the fact that you know, they thought a church would be safe. Mm. They thought this was, you know, the best they could do in terms of trying to shelter and find a place where they could, and their families who were displaced could, you know, at least survive what's going on. And there really is nowhere that is safe in Gaza at this point. Let's put this up on the screen in terms of the death toll. Listen, guys, these are the best numbers we can get. This is according to the AP. Um, 1,400 in Israel. I think we can be fairly confident about that one at this point. 4,300 uh, dead in Gaza. Those are the latest numbers. Again, remember, journalists are not really allowed inside of Gaza to be able to right. verify any of this. There's also a fear uh, that I saw reported in the Washington Post that more than a thousand individuals could be trapped under the rubble in Gaza um, from these bombings. And as I said before, there was a, a new massive bombing campaign overnight in Gaza, um, several hundred uh, strikes, over 300 strikes. So we we have yet to learn what the fallout from that is as well. Um, Sagar, I'll get you to weigh in on this. Oh, we can update on the, yeah. on the aid as well. Well, moving. I think it's important. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that. It's like, we can't, listen, we we are dealing with the Israelis and the freaking, you know, Palestinian health ministry or whatever. Nobody knows what these numbers are. And we would just say, that's why we need to allow foreign journalists inside of Gaza. There are American journalists who are chomping at the bit, who would love to be able to go in. Yes, even at risk of their own lives in order to give people uh, a better update to be able to see things for them themselves. Unfortunately, you know, internet access is beginning to be decline all over Gaza. Remember, they also yeah. don't have electricity or they do have it in some parts, but it's still very difficult, the infrastructure and all that. We have to be very, very careful about every single thing that is coming out of there, which is part of what makes it such a nightmare to even try uh, to report on what it is. I think that the church incident just highlights what we have flagged from day one. That's one of the most densely populated areas on the planet. And with the dense population, you can try. No air, air force in the world, as we all saw during the US drone campaign, you can have good intelligence, you can have world-class you know, air force, you can have JDAMs that cost tens of thousands of dollars a piece, plus or minus five feet, means a hell of a lot whenever, you know, think about New York City or any other uh, crowded metro area that you've ever been in and just think about what plus or minus five feet would mean when you've got buildings that are sometimes together. And yes, it is true. Hamas uses it to its advantage. The Israelis claimed that right across was like a major weapons depot, which is part of why it was happening. However, and very unfortunately, with, you know, the church and just like a hospital or any of these other areas where people, uh, com you know, commune because they believe that they're going to be safe, they're really not safe at the end of the day. And it, it also, to me, 
uh, underscores the wisdom of what Jocko said in that segment that we did on our last show, just about the pluses and the minuses, just from a pure military perspective, around what this bombing campaign is actually achieving, yeah. especially relative to the future goal. We'll talk about that uh, in the Gaza future block because there's still, there, we really, I want to think we should all be prepared and actually think carefully about what this military campaign is going to look like and what the fallout is. We failed to do that in Iraq. We failed to do that in Afghanistan. We honestly even failed to do it during the whole ISIS campaign, which is part of the reason why the world was so shocked about what was going on with that. And on this one, we have some time, at least for now, to think about it, and we shouldn't fail to actually take advantage of that. That's right, and we will talk more about it, but let me just say this for now. I mean, Israel, with the complete siege situation of all of Gaza, and with what I would describe as, in, I know they would dispute this, but indiscriminate bombing, you're talking about churches, mosques, marketplaces, schools, medical facilities, et cetera, with there being really no safe zone. Even after they told people, go south, and they're still bombing southern Gaza as well, there's really no place to seek safety. Ultimately, what you're doing, I, I don't know how effective they're being at taking out Hamas leadership at this point with this sort of like aerial bombing campaign, but you're terrorizing the entire population, and I guarantee you're creating more terrorists. I mean, yeah. just looking at history and the way this works out, I mean, how many, how many members of the terrorist organization Hamas, how many of them lost family members, and that's part of what radicalized them? And analysis is not justification, but... If your actual goal is peace and safety and security, and again, we're going to talk more about this, this is the wrong direction to go. And I do think that the fact that Justin Amash's Christian Palestinian relatives were killed in this bombing also underscores, like, you know, people have, especially because there are, are very few journalists allowed into Gaza, they have this very caricaturish view of who actually lives there. Yeah, that's true. Or they can just not really think about who actually lives there. And we try to say things like, you know, almost a majority of the population is children. Like, they're not home. They're innocent. They're the definition of innocence, right? But when you have these details of it's a Christian church, these were Christians who lived there as well, who were killed in this bombing, whether it was intentional on Israel's part or not. You get a sense of how many people are caught up in this and, you know, what a devastating human toll there is here as well. There's a little bit of, of good news. I don't want to oversell it here, but let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. We do have some aid trucks that were able to move through uh, Rafa crossing. This is from Egypt into Palestine. Um, let's put this up on the screen. According to UNICEF, they did confirm that the first deliveries of humanitarian aid crossed the border, but it's just enough for 22,000 people for one day that was driven through as part of a 20-truck convoy. Water capacity right now at 5% of normal levels in Gaza. And by the way, the water situation in Gaza is never good. So the fact you're at 5% of normal Gaza levels tells you how dire things truly are. I had seen a calculation previously, Sagar, that what you would actually need is 100 trucks mm. every single day to try to meet this need. So it's good that we got a few trucks few through, but it is you know not even close to the need that you have at this point, given no food coming in, no fuel, no electricity, very little water. Um, you know, it's, it's quite a dire situation for everyone in the Gaza Strip right now. The U.S., the very latest this morning is, because this was unclear, frankly, whether it would just be those 20 trucks and that's it, they're saying that they got some sort of a guarantee that trucks would continue to be able to move through this crossing. So that is incredibly vital for just uh, the life 
of people who are living in this area right now. Yeah, then then that's the just the insane difficulty of all of this, which is it just seems like every party who is involved doesn't seem to have any interest in any of these civilian lives. Like the Egyptians are making it difficult for like no reason. Um, Hamas, of course, not uh, exactly helping the situation. Israel helping nobody by firing on the actual crossing, crossing where right. this is all supposed to be happening. Um, and then I don't know if you you saw this. The Israelis accidentally fired on. Egyptian military forces and then had to apologize, which demonstrates the fog of war situation, how difficult all of this is. And sure, you can apologize, but you know, who's stopping the ground commander or whatever from being like, oh my God, we're under attack and then launching something again. This is the scary situation of all of this. The civilians are absolutely the ones who are caught in the crossfire and they're paying a big price. I mean, we're not, we're still not sure. And this is the unfortunate part. We do not know. We do not know for sure what the hell is going on. We've, I wish that we could get people into Gaza, at the very least, just journalists and cameras, like just let people see. But that's the immense difficulty of all of this. We would be able to report from them, you know, instead of uh, having to rely on reports, like we're saying, of a U.S. congressman whose Palestinian uh, Christian family was killed in an airstrike. Instead, you know, we're trying to parse through everything and everyone's looking at, you know, videos from Twitter, Instagram, and all that. That is not the proper way that you're supposed to actually be able to learn about these conflicts. We definitely learned that one the hard way in terms of propaganda from everybody all throughout the global war on terror, you know, uh, conflicts that we ended up in. So I just see the same mistakes being made again, Crystal. It's, yeah. it's really difficult. And the last piece we can put up here in terms of the, the dire situation on the ground already, and again, this is before any sort of uh, ground invasion has begun. According to the UN, in only 12 days, Israel destroyed 25% of the private homes in Gaza and made more than 600,000 Gazans homeless. They put out a whole report with their best intel and insights into what the situation is like in the Gaza Strip. But it just gives you a sense of the level of devastation already. And, you know, we've seen, you've probably, if you've been on Twitter, seen these images, these drone images of the amount of rubble and just how many buildings have been destroyed. So a quarter of all of the homes they're estimating have already been destroyed in the Gaza Strip. It is absolutely unimaginable. I mean, I can't even wrap my head around what that would look like to experience. Right. Well, this is the issue, is where we rely on drone footage. And, you know, again, everyone's like, oh, well, this one particular image, and it's being, I wouldn't say it's being manipulated, but things are spreading either way. They're like, no, this is what Gaza looks like. It's like some guy's house with a pool and the other ones. That's a better way to think about it. Just think about metro area. We've described it before. I think Philadelphia is like roughly the same size, uh, but with multiple times the population in Gaza, and then just think about what it would like to have that housing uh, re removed, and then also what an immense task it is going to be, uh, as you all find, we all found out in Iraq, when you break it, you buy it, and then you're responsible now for building that up. I mean, it's going to cost untold billions to rebuild at the very least, and that's not even factoring in the security situation and everything that I guess we'll, we'll talk about um, in the Gaza future. Let's move on to the polling, as Crystal you know, uh, alluded to. Some actually very fascinating polling just immediately after the conflict, which shows something I always have believed. You have to have faith in people because people, normal American citizens in most cases, are far uh, more morally clear 
understanding of nuance practical. and insightful, yeah. practical, <laughs> understand trade-offs than people who actually do this for a living, especially our electeds in Washington. Let's put this up there on the screen. This reflects this directly. Israel-Hamas conflict. What should the U.S. do now? 76% say we should send humanitarian aid to Israel. 72% say we should use diplomacy with countries in the region. 57% say we should send humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. So we have majority support for humanitarian to Israel, humanitarian aid to Palestinians, and 72% for diplomacy. Uh, you know what doesn't have majority percent? Only 48% send weapons and supplies to Israel. And when you start to dig into it even more, it's pretty shocking. Let's go to the next one, please, guys, because this is uh, on, partisan guy, uh, on partisan lines. For example, should the United States send humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza? This is by party. 70% of Democrats say we should. Independents, 60% say yes. 41% of Republicans say that we should. Now, should not. Only 30% of Democrats, 41% of Independents, and 60% of Republicans. Now, should the U.S. send weapons and supplies to Israel? Amongst Democrats, it's under a majority. Only 47% said that we should send weapons to Israel. 45% of independents, 57% of Republicans on the should side. But 53% of Democrats say that we should not. 55% say that we should not. And 43% of Republicans. I mean, this is not an overwhelming issue really at all by far on the side of weapons, on the side of all of that. The only ones, Crystal, that really have super majorities are send humanitarian aid to Israel and conduct diplomacy. And diplomacy. Uh, and it's interesting that number two on that one is probably the least discussed because if we were to understand that, then Americans should be outraged and horrified at the Biden administration, really Anthony Blinken too's, inept uh, moves in the Middle East, getting his own Middle East summit canceled. Well, you know, in the front of his, it's just humiliating to not, the United States and the American presidency. Not only that, they should be disgusted, as I am, that from the, the podium, Karine Jean-Pierre would call talks for diplomacy and the ceasefire specifically repugnant, and that they would instruct State Department officials, our nation's diplomats, not to use any language about ceasefire, calm, ending the violence, ending the bloodshed. Americans overwhelmingly want us to be engaged in talks. Support for ceasefire, extremely high, especially among Democrats, which this is the Democratic president, extremely high. So when you think about the media coverage, of what Israel is doing right now and the horrific attacks on Israel and the direction of the media coverage and how consistently hawkish they are mm -hmm. all the time. Platform people like Lindsey Graham are calling for all out, you know, holy war, world war as a basis for World War III. And you see you don't have majority support for sending weapons to Israel. You have very clear majority support for um, caring about the hu humanity of Palestinians. I mean, I just think given the media coverage, especially on cable news, that is absolutely extraordinary and yeah. does show you that, you know, you have, uh, I mean, I think it in part shows you that this issue is no longer among the, um, the population, is no longer as just like lockstep, we, we support Israel no matter what, as it used to be. I think part of that is social media. I think part of that is the rise of independent media, where there isn't just this one uniform view that people see. And I also just think, you know, uh, people have 
have hearts. They can see these children yes. who are suffering. They can see the entire population being like starved out in this siege and their hearts generally go out to them. They're able to hold two thoughts in their head that Hamas is evil, that they should be held to account, that there is no punishment too severe for them for what they did to Israel, mm -hmm. but also that not all Palestinians are Hamas and that they are just human beings and children in many cases trying to live. So you see that coming through in the polling. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised, I have to say. You know, there's an also an interesting poll from the Wall Street Journal about what direction uh, the American people want the country to go in. And, you know, we talked about the possibility of broader conflict and concern over the spreading into some sort of a hot war with Iran, which is very much on the table right now, given the comments both of the Biden administration and certainly of um, the Netanyahu administration. Well, American people are not excited about that possibility. Um, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is from the Wall Street Journal. They say, do you think the U.S. does or doesn't have a responsibility to protect Israeli citizens? OK, you've got a majority that say yes, 42 percent say 42 percent mm -hmm. say no. Protect Palestinian civilians, 41 percent say yes, 54 percent say no. But, you know, you're pretty split on even the question of whether you should support Israel in the war, 52-44. Um, you've got majority support for pushing parties to negotiate. And um, you have much less support and much less interest, though, for working toward Palestinian statehood, 2866. One of the things that came through in this poll, as it did, Sagar, in many of the polls, is just how much the divide is, is actually, I mean, there is a Democrat-Republican divide, but perhaps the bigger divide is actually generational, mm -hmm. where you have young people who view this conflict in very different terms than older generations, which do have more of that just whatever Israel does, we support them, we totally take their side, and that's the end of the story. Voters, especially under 30, but really under 40, taking a much different view of this conflict. Yeah, and this is all before. It's 50-50 before an actual major ground campaign has been launched with carnage, with death, with the daily video of street-to-street, hand-to-hand combat, before protests, before an, even an American soldier hopefully has been, you know, uh, hopefully has not been brought into this. That that's where it is right now. And that's, again, why I trust people, because people aren't stupid. They can see this. They see the headline about American troops getting attacked on a base in Iraq. And they're like, well, first of all, I didn't know they were there. And second, well, you know, I really wouldn't like to be drawn back into this because my cousin or my cousin went to Iraq and he came back and he was never the same. I mean, who hasn't got a story about something like that? And that is why the younger generation in particular has to be especially worried. They're either the ones with siblings or directly know people who are involved in the latest conflict, and they're the ones really who also had to pay the price in terms of giving up their entire adult life with no real, with no peace, you know, in their lives. That the boomer generations, as you said, they have a very different view in just in general about America, how it should operate. Well, and it's very, I think it's really Cold War influenced, Probably. too, of yeah. just like, world is black and white. There's the ones that are with yeah. us and the ones that are against us and the ones that are with us. We back them no matter what. And I think that's part of why you get this massive generational divide. I just pulled up CNN did a poll too. Hmm. And they asked, uh, is Israel's military response to Hamas attacks fully justified? Okay. So their whole response, the bombing campaign, the siege, et cetera, is that fully justified? If you're 65 plus, 81% say yes. Hmm. 18 to 34 years old, only 27% wow. say yes. So that's why I say the age divide 
is really the, the key driving factor here beyond partisanship. If you're a senior, 65 plus, 81% are like, yes, everything that Israel is doing, totally justified, I'm behind them, et cetera. 18 to 34, only a quarter, 27%. And it goes down like a ladder. It's 56% for 50 to 64 years old. It's 44% for 35 to 49 years old. And then it's only 27% for 18 to 34 years old, which is why, I mean, you know, I mean, it's always the youth that tends to be at these protests, but it's why you overwhelmingly see young people populating these um, protests calling for a ceasefire in the region and critical of Israel for what they're doing yeah, here. No, that's well said. So a lot of questions about what comes next after this bombing campaign. What is this potential ground invasion even going to look like? How can they accomplish their stated objective of destroying Hamas? Um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was actually on the Sunday shows yesterday, sounding some warnings about the difficulty of what Israel has planned. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. And they're, they're about to launch this ground offensive in Gaza. You, you were at CENTCOM. You were the CENTCOM commander when ISIS had control of, of Mosul. And, and it took nine months, but you cleared ISIS out, out of Mosul with our Iraqi and Kurdish partners. What, what, what is that? What were the lessons you learned there that apply here? Well, the first thing that everyone uh, should know, and I think everybody does know, that uh, urban combat is extremely uh, difficult. It's uh, it goes at a, at a, at a slow pace. Uh, that was nine months, nine yes. months of intense combat. Yes. This may be a bit more difficult because of the underground network of tunnels that, the, uh, uh, that Hamas has constructed over time and the fact that they've had a long time to, uh, to prepare for a fight. So I think uh, you'll see a fight that's characterized by a lot of IEDs, a lot of booby traps, uh, and just uh, really grinding activity uh, going forward. So you hear what he says there. Yeah. So the fight to uh, liberate Mosul from ISIS took nine months. It was brutal. It was bloody. It was incredibly difficult. Americans suffered casualties. Now you're talking about Lloyd Austin here saying this fight may be even more difficult because of, you know, the nature of urban warfare, because of how dug in Hamas is, because of the tunnel system. And there will certainly be significant IDF casualties yeah. here as well. I have some numbers uh, I can read. So I've been doing a lot of research into this. Inside the city of Mosul, there were 8,000 ISIS fighters compared to Gaza, where Hamas has an estimated 30 to 40,000 fighters. Palestinian Islamic Jihad has another 15,000 men under arms. So we're talking about 55,000 fighters wow. versus 8,000. In addition, ISIS was not from Mosul. They just took it over. Right. These people actually live there. So consider that ISIS did not have the majority support of the people in Mosul. They hated them just as much as everybody else. They were just militarily occupied. Hamas, I'm not going to claim they all ha support Hamas, but you know, they some do. They have more of a support than they definitely did in Mosul. They're going to be way more dug in in terms of the support from the civilian populace. So Honestly, the U.S., the West, we have not engaged in a fight like this maybe ever. You know, even in the war in Iraq during Fallujah and all that, 
actually, I'm not sure why, but the jihadists let the civilians leave maybe before they discovered human shields. So wheat didn't have nearly as amount of a densely populated area to contend with. And, you know, because America did not lose that many people in the battle on Mosul, we mostly were in a trade advise and assist. We mostly did not pay attention. I encourage people, if you're able, uh, Netflix has a movie called Mosul, which is an Iraqi movie that was made about it. Wow. You really need to go open your eyes as to what that conflict looked like. Block to block, horrific fighting, absolute savagery. As they, as he said, IEDs everywhere, can't, you know, can't move. The other problem with rubble is you can just bury an IED in everything and you're picking one thing up and you can blow everybody up. Um, and then also the immense difficulty of the air campaign. The US was involved definitely in the air campaign, but the Iraqi security forces, their casualties were insane in retaking Mosul. And again, they had the support in many cases of the civilian populace who right. wanted them to come back. This is a whole other situation. This really is, it's unprecedented in modern history, an urban fight like this. That's uh, absolutely what, right. And yeah. they're already, this was a good uh, a good pickup by Peter Baker here. Let's put this up on the screen. Susan Glasser was able to report that some senior Israeli officials are already telling the Americans that they should expect a war that could last as long as 10 years, a decade. That's what they're saying behind the scenes. And if we know anything about our experience of uh, misadventures in the Middle East, it's that it always goes longer and is way more difficult than you expect. And of course, you know, in basic many of the objectives that we set out for our military, both in Iraq and certainly in Afghanistan, even, you know, over the course of the long time period that we were there, we failed. I mean, Afghanistan is back in the hands of the Taliban. That tells you everything you need to know about how well our uh, nation-building exercises went there, ultimately. Let's put this up on the screen. This is from the Times of Israel. They're reporting here on, you know, what this could all look like. So they say, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Israel should be devising a strategy for who will rule Gaza after it completes its mission of toppling Hamas. So keep in mind, the airstrikes right now, for them, that's nothing. That's the easy part. What are they even accomplishing? We don't even know how many Hamas fighters they're actually even taking out or whether it's, you know, largely, and I, I expect it is largely civilians who are being killed in these airstrikes. So that part, then, okay, let's say you're able to accomplish this very difficult feat of the ground invasion and rooting out Hamas, which we just laid out for you how difficult that's going to be. Then what? Let me continue to read here. Um, quote, there are different ideas out there about what could follow. All of that needs to be worked, and it's something that needs to be worked even as Israel is dealing with the current threat. That's what Blinken is telling NBC's Meet the Press. This appears to be the first time that Washington is publicly urging Israel to think about its day after strategy after privately doing so in order to avoid making the same mistakes the U.S. made after 9-11, which led it to being bogged down and dragged out in the Middle East. Israeli officials have said publicly they are currently focused on eradicating Hamas, are not thinking about what might come after, though the government's newest ministers from the National Unity Party demanded the crafting of a more holistic strategy upon entering the government. Netanyahu's office issued a statement on Friday declaring that the premier's defined goal for the Gaza war 
war is the elimination of Hamas. All talk of decisions to hand over the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian Authority or any other party is a lie. So insisting, no, we really have no plan after this, okay? Netanyahu has come under fire since the start of the Gaza war from critics who have accused him of working to strengthen Hamas over the past 15 years in order to divide Palestinian factions and avoid peace talks with more moderate PA. Asked what Israel's strategy is for who will govern Gaza after the war is over, Blinken tells Meet the Press, we cannot go back to the status quo. They can't go back to the status quo with Hamas being in a position in terms of its governance of Gaza to repeat what it did. At the same time, what I've heard from the Israelis is absolutely no intent, no desire to be running Gaza themselves. So something needs to be found that ensures that Hamas cannot do this again, but that also doesn't revert to Israeli governance of Gaza. So they've got a lot about what they don't want this to look like. Not a lot of details so far. And in fact, an out and out insistence by Netanyahu that they have no idea what comes after this uh, effort. Yeah, because to they don't want to sign up for it. And then that's, that's again, right. the major difficulty of this. Well, then who the hell is going to be in charge? Is it going to be Israel? Is it going to be the United Nations? I mean, yeah, the UN is so good at nation building too. Ask Rwanda how that's going. Um, there are so many examples where, okay, are, are we going to turn it over to the administration of Egypt and of Jordan? I mean, they're just going to do what's good for them, not necessarily for the people who are in charge here. Are they going to administer elections. How did that work out for America in Iraq and in Afghanistan? It turns out this is actually extremely difficult. And that's why in general, it's usually better to let the uh, the actual party involved decide it for themselves. Unfortunately, you know, in this case and in the past, that usually means uh, a scenario which you cannot 100% control. This really does just come back to so many of the lessons in Iraq. And even in, when we consider it, a couple of different ways. You could say like, oh, we're in this for the elimination of Hamas. In General Stanley McChrystal, he became very famous, designed this whole JSOC counterterrorism unit in 2006. Mm -hmm. It became incredibly efficient at killing al-Qaeda terrorists all throughout 2000, and I think it's 2006 and 2007. And yet in 2007, the US still had to surge troops to quash al-Qaeda violence and intra-civil uh, war between Sunni and Shia because there was a core, like there was a core problem that just killing terrorist leaders was not getting to, which is you had two basically irreconcilable groups that were pushed to the brink of war that was then had the chaos of the invasion backstop. So you can kill probably every single member of Hamas leadership. Will that actually degrade or destroy the entire organization? I mean, basically, no. Now, you can take away their military capability. That's basically what we did in uh, against ISIS, and that, of course, was effective, and we took away the land that they operated in. But it's just not the same situation yeah. that we're dealing with. It is far more akin to like a true counterinsurgency campaign yeah. where you have the population here that dramatically more supports the group that is trying, we're supposedly trying to eliminate than ISIS or even Al Qaeda in Iraq ever had in terms of the civilian support. It is going to be. It is just going to be absolutely brutal and savage. And my fear is that exactly what the IDF did in 2006 and 2014 will happen. They're going to take a ton of casualties. They're going to withdraw, and they're going to be like, well, we've got air power. The enemy doesn't, and you're just going to carpet bomb the entire place, which is, as history has also shown us, unless you basically commit to total annihilation, you still can't win You know the conflict. I mean, what they're doing right now, and I keep thinking about the the comments we played that you guys should go back and listen to if you didn't hear from Jocko Willink. Yeah. Who's yeah. like, again, not a lib, right. not a lefty, commie, pinko, whatever you all think of me. 
he is someone who actually has experience on the ground. And he's saying, okay, if your objective is to root out Hamas, mm -hmm. let's be serious about what that would take. The first thing I would do is to stop bombing Gaza because all you're doing is further radicalizing a population which is already under siege and already by and large hates your guts, by the way. Mm. So, you know, given the multi-year blockade and the long history of trauma and death and grievance and injury between these two parties, you're already starting out behind the eight ball here. Your indiscriminate bombing campaign that has killed thousands of civilians and more than a thousand kids and all of this, not helping the situation in terms of gaining some support on the ground that could help you figure out who you need to get at, who was involved in these attacks. So that's number one. Number two, you should be surging humanitarian aid to the broader civilian population to try to build out that goodwill. And even with all of that, it is going to be insanely difficult to actually achieve the stated objective, which is why I don't think they actually really care about the stated objective, because it's not just him. There was uh, a bunch of military experts who were quoted in Vox who said the exact same thing, that if you actually, if this is your real objective, this is the path to get there, not what you're doing right now with the complete siege and this massive aerial bombing campaign. So there's that. The other thing is, Sagar, and you kind of alluded to this, there's two possibilities here. One is, as Netanyahu is very much insisting, we really haven't thought about what comes next. We don't know who's going to rule Gaza. We don't know what governance is going to look like. We don't know. We're pushing that off to another day to think about. That's terrifying in and of itself. Mm. More terrifying is that they actually do have some idea of what it's going to look like. They just don't want to say it because they know it would be so broadly unacceptable, perhaps to their own population, certainly to you know parts of the world, may not be something that the U.S. could sign on for. And, you know, in that regard, a lot of people are pointing to a plan that was released by some of Netanyahu's coalition partners with his stamp of approval back in 2017 for what they wanted to do with um, both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Let's put this up on the screen. So the, uh, the thought leader behind this is um, this dude who is a member of the Netanyahu cabinet, um, Smotrich, he's one of the most extreme members of what is the most extreme government in Israeli history. So they say here, Israeli party approves annexation plan to coerce Palestinian departure with a stamp of Netanyahu approval. Right-wing party conference discusses their plan to annex the Palestinian territories and offer a surrender or transfer ultimatum. Basically, this plan, which was laid out back in 2017, is we'll give you three options. We're going to take over the land. You're no, it's, you're no longer going to have any right to it. You have to abandon any dream of Palestinian statehood. This idea of a two-party solution is anathema to us. We don't want it. Um, we say, and this was the quote from Smotrich, he says, these are the foundations on which Zionism was erected. We do not assume there are two narratives here that are equal. There's one side that's correct and another that is undermining the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state. We have to engrave in the consciousness of the Arabs in the entire world. There is no chance of establishing an Arab state in the land of Israel. And so the plan here was to give three options. One is you can abandon any idea of statehood basically swear loyalty to Israel. You can remain living here, but you will have no rights in terms of being a citizen and being able to vote, being able to participate in democracy. That's number one. Number two, if you won't give up your desire for statehood, we're going to force you to move. And number three, if you don't, if you're unwilling to move, basically we're going to take care of you in one way or another. So that was the plan laid out by his coalition partners. Is that some somewhat of the direction that they want to go in here after Gaza? To me, that's an even more terrifying possibility is that they actually have thought through 
what the plan is. They just don't want to actually say right now. And that's why they're so insistent that, oh, we actually haven't thought it through. We have no idea what comes after the ground invasion. Yeah, the defense minister is being uh, more, I guess, uh, reticent about it. Let's put this up there on the screen. They say they have three phases of the war. First um, is the military campaign that will take place with airstrikes and later a ground maneuver with the purpose of, quote, destroying operatives and damaging infrastructure in order to defeat and destroy Hamas. The second phase, quote, will be continued fighting, but at a lower intensity as troops work to eliminate pockets of resistance. That sounds like military occupation. Good luck because now you're in the administration business, you're in the water business, you're in the police business, as we found out the hard way in Iraq. The third step, he says, will be creation of a new security regime in the Gaza Strip, the removal of Israel's responsibility for day-to-day life in the Gaza Strip, and the creation of a new security reality for the citizens of Israel and the residents of the area surrounding Gaza. So nobody knows what that means. Very what does vague. security regime means? Does it mean full-blown occupation? Does it mean uh, you know governmental consent to whichever government is in power? Good luck with that, you know, achieving that. It just shows the uh, extraordinary difficulty in all of this. And then I will just say also, from a military cape point of view, yeah. it is, even if they wanted to achieve that thing that you pointed out, um, do you do they understand the level of capability and commitment that that would require? I mean, think about, for example, the worst bombing campaigns against civilians. And I don't mean that in moral sense. I mean that in terms of their direct purpose, like the U.S. final days of the war against Tokyo, firebombing and killing 100,000 people in a single night, in the words of Robert McNamara. Even with that, with the full might of the U.S. military, the destruction of Nazi Germany, the dedication of all of this bombs and all of that, we still were not militarily capable of compelling the Japanese to surrender. Because from a pure, just like math point of view, even with all the bombs and the napalm and all that, you couldn't just simply accomplish that. We tried it in Vietnam and it didn't work. In some, I forget exactly. It was like there was a single mission or something like that where you dropped all the bombs and equivalent to something like in World War II. Yeah, guess what? Ho Chi Minh still didn't surrender and they are the ones who ended up winning the war. So you cannot bomb your... You, in, in general, you cannot bomb your enemy into submission unless, as we did, you're willing to use nuclear weapons and atomic weapons, and that's a whole other you know, strategic level of the game. And then bef- before you even got to a point where they were doing something like that, the U.S., uh, Egypt, Jordan, uh, all the rest of the Arab world would be in, embroiled in a bigger conflict. So it wouldn't even be confined oh, to that. That's the, that's the thing overlaying all of this is— the idea that they have total freedom of maneuver. They're not a superpower. They're reliant on us, and then the rest of the world also is on, or at least the rest of the Arab world is mostly sympathetic with the Palestinians, and then they would get involved. So it's a much bigger problem than I think that they're laying on. They, they think they can just do what they want, and you know whether they should or should not, like that's just not how it's going to work, period. It's never had been how it's worked previously, especially in a situation where we're talking about mass civilian death. It's, it's impossible yeah. for them to accomplish this. As you're watching the statements come out from the Netanyahu government. Also, just keep in mind, like, their audience is the world, their audience is their own domestic populace, but one of their most important audiences is us, yeah, and the American Biden. president, the American people, the providing cover for the U.S. to be involved um, in the way that we are right now and continue our funding. I mean, they really are very much dependent 
on the massive amount of aid on this new aid package that Biden is trying to push through that will have, you know, Ukrainian aid and Israeli aid and border funding and, you know, on a side note, a little bit of humanitarian aid for, for Gaza as well. And so they are they are eyes on the prize, saying what needs to be said publicly to make sure that they can continue to be the recipient of that aid and keep that lockstep bipartisan consensus around support for whatever it is that they're doing um, in place here in Washington. So just keep that in mind. We always make little notes about what communications come out in English yeah. versus what comes out in Hebrew. So, you know, something for you to watch as well as this is all yeah. unfolding. Thank God for Google Translate, by the way. Yeah. Uh, that we can at least get a, the gist indeed. of what people are saying because, yeah, they're very, sometimes it, and Al Jazeera is the perfect example. Al Jazeera Arabic is nothing like Al Jazeera English. And that's for a reason. They have very different audiences very different that audiences. you're looking at. Same in Israel. Keep you know, Hebrew TV is very different than English Israeli TV. Yes. All right, so let's talk a little bit of domestic politics here because this was really significant. We didn't want it to get lost. You had two major figures involved in that Georgia Fulton County case against Trump and a whole raft of other uh, indicted co-conspirators, part of the RICO charges. Two significant individuals who took plea deals and appear to have flipped and are now working with the prosecution. Let's put this up on the screen first. Sidney Powell. Former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell, known for her release the Kraken antics and general insanity in terms of being the like most, she was the most willing to offer the craziest yes. stop the steal analysis, Venezuela, whatever. She was willing to go there. Okay. She is now pleading guilty in Georgia in that election interference case. As part of the plea deal, she has to testify about any co-defendants in the case. She is one of 18 co-defendants, you'll recall, in this particular election interference case in Georgia. Um, so she's pleading guilty to six misdemeanor charges. According to the agreement that was read in court Thursday, she'll get 12 months of probation for each count and a $6,000 fine. As part of the agreement, Powell must testify truthfully about any co-defendants involved and provide all documents the district attorney's office relevant to their case against the other co-defendants, Cornyn Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee. Now, she was in some of the key, like, Oval Office meetings. Yes. She would almost, like, elbow her way in, and there were other people who were trying to keep her and some of the other, like, Mike Lindell types out of the Oval, but she would find her way in. She was also involved in some of the, like, craziest press conferences mm -hmm. that happened during that time. At one time, Trump said she was his lawyer. At another time, they kicked her off the team. Um, she also was implicated in, I don't know if you guys remember us talking about that Coffee County situation in Georgia, where Trump team members, herself included, came and committed allegedly actual election interference by um, getting into the computer systems there and their attempts to prove that there was election fraud. So now Trump has come out and he's, of course, pretending like, Sidney Powell who? I've never heard of her. She had nothing to do with me, et cetera, et cetera. Let's put this up on the screen. He's claiming Sidney Powell was never his attorney in a social media post on Sunday, three days after she pleaded guilty. Um, he wrote, Sidney Powell is one of millions and millions of people who thought, and in ever-increasing numbers still think, correctly, that the 2020 presidential election was rigged and stolen and our country is being absolutely destroyed because of it. Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. In fact, she would have been conflicted. That's what he wrote on Truth Social. <laughs> Okay, so that's what he's trying to say is like, I don't even know who this lady is. She just believed the claims, but, you know, she really had nothing to do with anything. That, of course, is total nonsense. Yes. Although I will say, I mean, I think there are some questions about how much of on the inner circle 
she really was in terms of formulating the plans and like really crafting the behind the scenes concept of the fake elector schemes and all of that, which is why in some certain respects, this next individual, even though he's less well known, may actually be more significant to the case. Let's put this up on the screen. Uh, lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro, Trump-aligned lawyer, pleads guilty in Georgia, became the second lawyer after Sidney Powell in two days to plead guilty in a criminal racketeering indictment that also names Donald Trump. Um, he agreed to cooperate with state prosecutors in Fulton County have accused him, Trump, and 17 others of conspiring to overturn the election. He pleaded guilty to a single felony charge of conspiracy and was sentenced to five years probation. He was originally charged with seven felonies, including one charge under the state racketeering law, so it seems like he got a pretty good deal here. Emails obtained, they say, show that Mr. Cheeseborough was considering not only the legality of various maneuvers related to the elector's scheme in the weeks after the election, but also their political ramifications, potentially undercutting arguments that he was merely offering legal advice. One email chain included messages from John Eastman, another conservative lawyer who has been charged in the Georgia case. Okay, so a couple things why this is significant. So he's the first person with real inside knowledge of this alleged fake electors scheme. I was not elective, not really alleged at this point. We all say it, saw it playing out um, to plead guilty and agree to cooperate. So in theory, he may know some of the nitty gritty details, how involved Trump was, what Trump really thought about these things. It's also significant because as they were pointing out here, one of Trump's potential defenses is like, I was just acting on the advice of my attorney. Yes. Like my lawyers told me this was legal. I was going with what they were saying. And so the fact that you have one of those attorneys talking about not only the legal implications, the political implications, and cooperating with prosecutors, not good in terms of that potential Trump defense. The other thing here that they point out in this article, Sagar, which I hadn't really thought through, is mm. Cheesebro and Sidney Powell had both exercised their right to a speedy trial, which is why their thing is on a faster track than everybody else. Jury selection was set to begin like imminently when these deals were struck. And if they had moved forward with these cases, then because they're all caught up in these racketeering charges, the prosecution would have had to reveal a lot of what their case was. And it would have been a huge advantage for Trump and the right. others to be able to see, okay, what evidence are, do they have? What case are they really making here? How are they approaching this in court? So the fact that this has short-circuited those trials really undercuts the ability of the Trump team to see what they're gonna throw at them when that case ultimately comes to trial. The big th problem for Trump is that he tweeted in November of 2020 that she was one of his, quote, wonderful lawyers. Mm -hmm. So he can't say that she wasn't his lawyer. I mean, well, maybe they didn't can formally, say it, but as you he can does, say it, but, but like, unless you <laughs> formally, yeah, if you sign like a letter of engagement or whatever, then that's definitely one of your lawyers. So I think you're right, which is that from the point of view of who was the most involved in some of the schemes that he could find himself in the most trouble, it's definitely Kenneth Cheeseborough. It also bears, uh, you know, big questions about Rudy Giuliani. Would he ever turn mm -hmm. as a prosecutor? The level of people who are flipping, quote unquote, against Trump. And, you know, in terms of Trump's defense, like it's going to be a lot more difficult in Georgia because we're dealing with state election law. This is something we've always tried to highlight here. The federal charges on Trump regarding January 6th and all that, personally, I just don't think it passes even close to the First Amendment test in terms of like what free speech is, how you would have to prove incitement, all of that. That's going to be extraordinarily difficult. I'm not saying it won't pass a D.C. jury, but in terms of whether it makes it to Supreme Court or not and how it'll pass there, we'll see. But 
Remember that the state of Georgia and in our federalist system, states themselves are the ones who administer their own elections. So for Trump, when he's being charged with trying to disrupt official proceedings in the state, they actually have this, the, the ironclad jurisdiction over their secretary of state, manipulation schemes on all of that. Mm-hmm. I think the best case for Trump is just, you know, I don't know, try and make it as political as possible. And of course, you know, on that front, like, why did it take so three years or whatever to charge him? Oh, you happen to charge him like right before the year, before the election? Yeah, who can deny that doesn't it doesn't look ridiculous. But after it's been charged, now it's a legal fight that you're embroiled in. You're not in a political fight anymore. I'm you know, it remains to be seen yet what what how it will turn out. I don't I genuinely don't know. Yeah. Like what political defense can they mount? on the Georgia, or sorry, a legal Legal defense, defense. can they mount? We talked with Brad Moss. He's like, he's just got to blame his lawyers. But if your lawyers are not cooperating against you, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, Yeah. that's why the Cheeseboro one in particular Mm -hmm. is very difficult. Now, they say, actually, they did not officially sign an engagement letter with Sidney Powell. But if you're out on Twitter or True Social or whatever, announcing, like, she's my great lawyer, then, you know, obviously there was a connection there. Mm -hmm. It's not this, like, oh, she was just one of millions who also agreed with me that the election was stolen. So put that aside. I mean, if I had to rank the cases in terms of their sort of legal strength. The documents case, I mean, it's pretty open and shit. Like, I I genuinely don't see any defense that they have there because it's not only that you kept all these documents, but they asked over and over again, you're moving boxes around, you're caught hiding them, all of that. I mean, it's just that one, I don't see how you're getting out of that one, Mm -hmm. okay? Next, I would put this one because as you said, state election law, it's a much more clear cut Um, case against him. And now that you have these relatively high level, high profile individuals who are flipping and are cooperating and they're undercutting your defense about like, I was just doing what my lawyers told me. That one seems very difficult. And then, but you know, I, I view the Jack Smith one here in DC very differently because he wasn't arguing in that indictment that Trump was inciting January 6th rioters. It really was also about these fake elector scheme, Mm -hmm. which, you know, so that's, kind of gets around the free speech issues. And he crafted the indictment specifically to try to avoid those questions. The other thing with the Jack Smith case, of course, is that you've got a DC jury, which DC being not exactly super friendly Trump territory, so the jury pool matters there as well. But I do think that this makes things much more difficult for him in the state of Georgia. It's hard for me to see how he gets out of this. To me, it's a question of timing. And I will say, it's just always important Yes, the indictments haven't really changed, you know, they've, if anything, strengthened him in the Republican primary. They haven't really changed his approval rating with the American public. It is still possible that when you have an actual trial and you're facing actual prison time and you've got, you know, this courtroom drama playing out, that it does sit differently with the American people. And the last thing that I'll say on this saga is, you know, I do think that there's, it has been instructive to me to watch the way the civil case in New York for Mm -hmm. business fraud has been playing out because I feel like we're all working with a little bit of an outdated analytical framework when it comes to Trump and his ability to wriggle out of things because he's not wriggling out of the civil case in New York. Now, he's not going to go to jail for it, um, but he's already lost his business licenses in the state, could be in very significant financial trouble. You know, they're really not debating at this point whether there was fraud. They're debating how severe it was, what the penalty is ultimately going to be. And so for me, it has been instructive to see the difference between how things play for him in the political realm 
versus how they actually play for him in a courtroom when you've actually got to like back up what you're saying with some evidence and some facts and you can't just, you know, post on true social that oh you didn't actually know Sidney Powell and that's somehow going to fly. The big question as the big thing is the wild card factor of what happens should a conviction occur. How does right. that affect the political system? Nobody knows. It's completely unprecedented. Yeah. What if Trump strikes a deal and he's like, "Okay, I won't run." And that leads to some sort of, you know, I mean, what does that mean? Like, well, you have a last minute effort to plug somebody in. And if you think these types of things can't happen, try telling us all a month ago that the United States would have no speaker of the house for two weeks and no foreseeable path to actually <laughs> fulfilling the, the number three future. slot in the government that cannot do anything. These things do happen. And when they happen, it's, first it's a little bit crazy, then the frenzy dies down, and now it's just a matter of routine. Who knows? You know what does it? And each specific case is a major problem that uh, faces Trump. Sure, he certainly could wriggle his way out of it. He could become the president. And then we have to go through all kinds of novel interpretations of what that means. It could mean a major political backfire, as we said. The RNC could replace him. He himself could drop out. There's simply no way of knowing. Like what will actually happen in in this entire scenario. And that's why, you know, as I, I think as tedious as some of the legal coverage on this can be, you have no choice but to look for it. Yeah, we Because you just know it. what the stakes could be in the future. This the details of this singular case could decide the American presidency in 2024. That's not an exaggeration. It absolutely could. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, when there are major developments, like we would be we would really be failing yes, if we didn't I pay think. attention to them because right. It is an extraordinary set of circumstances. It is a place we in the country have never been before. And so, you know, these were certainly some major developments in the Georgia case that are not good for Trump whatsoever. For me, a lot of the question of all of this and how it plays out is timing. I think this one is this trial for Trump is set to start like beginning of next year. How long does it take for that to play out? You're talking about all these other um, co-conspirators in terms of a RICO case. Then there could be an appeal. So none of this is going to happen in short order. And for, for me, that's the real wild card is just what is the timing on this? When, if he is actually found guilty, when does that hit? What does that look like? Where are we in the political cycle? And there's just no way to know right now. Absolutely correct. Last part here. Uh, I, I guess we're trying to bring back a little bit of fun to the show, although <laughs> even on this one, there's not a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it, it's lighter than the rest of the yeah, show, I we'll just say. Let's go with that. <laughs> Let's put this up there on the screen. Dave Chappelle, it appears, has drawn the ire of a Boston crowd after criticizing Israel. This was a kind of a very sparse Wall Street Journal report. And what they say is that it appears, based upon multiple reports, that Dave Chappelle, at a comedy show in Boston on Thursday, criticized Israel's bombing of Gaza at a performance in which the comedian said that the U.S. was aiding the slaughter of innocent civilians. That was at the TD Garden. Chappelle condemned the October 7 attack on Israel by Hamas militants, but then criticized what he said were war crimes in Gaza, according to people in attendance. Quote, the comments came up when Chappelle said that he didn't think students should lose a job offers for supporting Palestinians, and audience members' command for the comedian to, quote, shut up, drew an emotional response from Chappelle 
Appel, who then criticized the Israeli government for cutting off water and other essentials to Gaza and accused it of killing innocent peoples. Some audience members cheered Chappelle and shouted, free Palestine. Others yelled, what about Hamas? Some in the crowd got up and left. Quote, toward the conclusion of his show, he said of Israeli policies and Hamas attacks that two wrongs don't make a right. Now we have one report from an individual who apparently did attend this show and described it for all of us. Let's put this up there on the screen. They say, quote, I saw Dave Chappelle last night at the Boston TD Garden. It was sold out, so I would say 22,000 people were there. Three-fourths into the show, he said, I wanted to address what's going on in Israel-Palestine. He specifically said Palestine and said it before Israel. He said what happened on October 7 wasn't right, but what I'm going on isn't right and not just. You can't kill innocent civilians like that, and the whole world stood silently and watches. Someone shouted at him from the crowd, said, shut the F up, Dave. He went nuts and yelled back, no, you shut the F up. You don't take tens of billions of dollars from my country to go kill innocent women and children and then come and tell me to shut the F up. He said, don't come begging for my money for my country and then go drop bombs on kids and cut off innocent people, water, and electricity. You have the audacity to pay to come see me and then tell me to shut the F up. No, you shut the F up. The crowd started <laughs> clapping and cheering for him and saying, yes, Dave, chance of free Palestine and said, damn right, free Palestine. He went on a 15-minute rant about being Muslim and the Israelis are projecting what's wrong with them on Muslims and the crowd kept on cheering. It was surreal. Crowd was a typical Boston demographic, 80% white, 5% black, quote, the rest Latin and others. So that's a report, eyewitness uh, Yeah, uh, report. We, we can't confirm this report. This is just floating around on social yeah, media. It, but I will say that does sound like Dave Chappelle, doesn't it? Does, it does, absolutely sounds yeah. like Dave Chappelle. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, for though for the inevitable of like, why are you reporting? Listen, Dave, and this is always a difficulty, he often veers in the direction of social commentary interspersed with his comedy. That's so what he does. That's what he, and there's and nothing done. wrong with that. That's what he's always done. I mean, he, remember he did that entire special after George Floyd that he put out. Like, was True. that comedy? Like, not really. You know, it's a piece of silver. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. My point though, is that it's clear that this will become a major lightning rod, not just for audiences, but how comedians and others are going to handle it because it just highlights like, we're all trying to process something together as a culture at the same time. And it invites, you know, a lot of controversy. This is where I'm sure Dave is happy for uh, the fact that nobody was recording or watching the show yeah. while it was happening. Good for him, honestly. I support that policy. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think it, it shows the the difficulty. And also, Dave is not a person to uh, to keep his mouth shut. He's going to say what he thinks, <laughs> he, which I support. I yeah, support him 100%. he's a free. I mean, and yeah, he's, he's a, a free, free man. man. He's going to do and say what he thinks, uh, whether you agree or disagree. That's certainly been his uh, his style from the beginning. I mean. If you go back and watch the very first Chappelle show and some of the stuff that he put on air, how many said, oh my years. God, yeah, it's been like, a long time. this was right. your first episode. So mm -hmm. even when he was under the like corporate brand, Dave Chappelle always very much a, a free man. For me, the the reporting is that, you know, th this one individual says that oh, there were chance of free Palestine and the audience was mostly backing him up. We have no way of knowing without being in the room. There were also reports that there were people who were really angered and left um, because of, of the commentary and his response to the audience. And obviously somebody reportedly said, you know, shut the F up, Dave, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a reminder of how hot and how incredibly emotional this issue is and how dangerous it, I mean, talk about third rails in American politics, getting on, you know, saying the quote unquote wrong thing, or as the ADL dude said, mm -hmm. not getting the story right 
on what's happening with Israel and what they're doing to Gaza right now, there is there is no cancel culture like this kind of cancel culture. And we've seen it in, you know, there have been multiple Palestinian conferences canceled now, one here in Virginia, very close to D.C., one down in Texas, I believe, in Houston. You've got Starbucks actually suing their union Starbucks workers united because they put out some pro-Palestinian <laughs> thing. You got people getting fired. You got some high level, like very well-known, powerful agent in Hollywood who posted some pretty innocuous, reposted actually some pretty innocuous stuff on Instagram. And she apologized and still got fired. Mm. Um, so yeah, this is, you know, a little bit of a glimpse. Dave Chappelle is wealthy and famous and whatever. He's going to say whatever the hell he wants, and no one is going to tell him to shut up, and he's going to be just fine. But I do think it is a visceral illustration of how intense, how fraught, how emotional this issue is, and how, for people who aren't Dave Chappelle, even someone who was a high-level agent in Hollywood, a CAA, how much saying the quote-unquote wrong thing on this issue can have massive implications for you, your personal life, your career, et cetera. Yes, uh, well said, Crystal. Also, just for people who are wondering, uh, if you even try and mention Israel to me in the DM on Instagram, I'm not going to see it. I've already had it filtered out. So oh, I just really? wanted to put that out oh, there. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I, I highly recommend it, Crystal. There are certain, you can block like any certain words or any of that, so I just have a list of things. Israel I, I and Palestine even, have now I didn't know been that. added. I'm in blissful ignorance, so I'm living my <laughs> life, folks. Live. I'm posting stories about the Museum of the American Revolution and George Washington's war tent. And that's the world that I've decided uh, to live in. Anyways, uh, we just want to say thank you for all your support um, over the last two weeks. It's been very difficult to report on the story. We're still keeping our eye on, as you saw, with Sidney Powell and the Trump News not taking our eye off that. We're working very hard on the focus group, working to bring you guys the best possible news. We're you know on call, waiting, making sure uh, that we keep everybody as up-to-date as possible. And uh, we support... Uh, Wait, thank you all again for your support, and we are going to see you all tomorrow. Actually, Ryan will be in for me oh, tomorrow. Oh, that's right. I forgot so about Sagar that. So Sagar will see you, right, I will and see you. Ryan will see you, and yeah. I'll see you guys on Thursday. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.